One, sorry for my tardiness, I got caught up in some traffic on 77, and then the ambulance came. Um, we'd like to welcome everyone to another meeting of the Business, Commerce, and Administrative Subcommittee. Again, thank you all for being here and being patient with me. Uh, Brother Rivers, could you pray for us, please? Yes, Lord, we thank you for your loving kindness and your tender mercies. You have been better to us than we could ever be to ourselves. So, Lord, we ask that you would lead us and guide us and help us to make the proper decisions for this state. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. We have several items on our agenda this morning. A majority of them are kind of like repeats coming back to us again. But the first one, document 4802, um, comes from us from LLR with recording and reporting occupational injuries. Ms. Beeson is here, as well as Ms. Baker. She's not here? Okay, you signed her in? Did, I did, I forged <laughs> her name, sorry. Okay. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee. Um, this is a, a regulation to, and let me turn to the right page, I'm sorry, update our South Carolina OSHA regulations. And just very, very briefly, South, uh, South Carolina OSHA is one of the labor programs we have at the agency. We have the 40 professional and occupational licensing boards. And then separately, we have the Division of Fire and Life Safety, the fire marshal. But then we also still have several labor programs. One of them is the Immigrant Worker Compliance Program. Um, one is our wages program. And then this is our South Carolina OSHA program. Uh, South Carolina OSHA is a state-based OSHA plan. It is one of 26 states that retained control over their OSHA program rather than allowing the federal government to mandate uh, what we were required to do as far as OSHA was concerned. Inherent in that, though, is a requirement that we as a state plan promulgate regulations that are substantially similar to or at least as stringent as those that the federal government requires. So generally, whenever we promulgate a regulation or if we update a regulation, it's because the federal government has done the same. That is what we have here today. These are updates to our injury and illness reporting requirements. And if you look, it looks like a lot because I, we put the whole section of OSHA in there, but there are very few changes. All of them are underlined. But at the end of each of those paragraphs, you will see a corresponding number. It usually says like 1904. That is the corresponding number to the Code of Federal Regulations from where this language came. So we are simply mirroring what the federal OSHA program requires us to do. Just very briefly, injury and illness reporting is required of employers who have 10 or more employees and, in, and is required in certain industries. So a lot of businesses do not have these requirements. Um, a lot of them are exempt, but this ensures that our OSHA program is aware when someone is injured on the job and can timely investigate the injury so as to determine the cause of the industry uh, injury to ensure that if there need to be corrections made by the employer to prevent further injuries, we are on the scene immediately to do so. Um, typically, it's, I think it's a scale in here as far as what is required, but these types of things are not really changing. It, we're just 
updating some phone numbers in here, providing further guidance on how you report the injury. Uh, Representative Bradley and I spoke a little bit about this yesterday, but basically if, you, if, if our office is closed and you have a, a fatality or a catastrophic injury on the job, then we have numbers where you call and you get the live voice. You, you can notify us, and I think the reporting requirement for something significant like that is within eight hours. If you don't know it has occurred, it's within eight hours of your learning it has occurred, so it's not unreasonable. But again, timelines are not changing. We're just mirroring the federal requirements and fleshing out exactly how you get in touch with us, where we're located, what our numbers are. Any questions? Thank you. <laughs> okay. Okay, we entertain a motion. It's been moved and second. Ready to vote. Okay, Mr. Alexander? Yes. Mr. Bradley? Yes. Mr. Rivers? Aye. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next item is um, document 4778. Also, LLR dealing with classification and residential specialty contract. Yeah, we dealt with this last week, and you came back with some corrections. It was withdrawn, so you came back with those corrections, basically. That is okay. correct. Thank you. Um, we, sim we did a withdraw and resubmit, and we wanted to make that one clarification that you see on the right side of the page toward the bottom where we added the parenthetical except those used for liquid propane gas. We just wanted to make sure we were being very clear about what to what this regulation applied, not to these old fuel oil, um, fuel oil, uh, whatever, that are in houses. We're trying not to reach them. Okay. Tanks. That's okay. For. Any questions? Yes, go ahead, go ahead. We didn't get anywhere with the requirement on the roof thing. Uh, you know, the, the, what we had talked about relative to the three letters and all that sort of stuff, we didn't change any of that? No, we did not. That, and that, I think that's more statutory, I think, as far as what is required to be a residential specialty contract. <coughs> but no change on that, no, sir. <laughs> so you added plumber and solar panel installers at this time? It, they, it, they were there last week and we talked about them. The only thing we did was add that parenthetical right after we had previously stricken liquid okay. fuel piping and tanks. We, we unstruck that, if that's a word, um, and <laughs> added that parenthetical so we were being very clear about to what this applied and didn't reach people we didn't intend for gotcha. it to reach. Gotcha. Okay. Any other questions? Move for adoption to send it for a committee. Ready to vote. Mr. Alexander? Yes. Mr. Bradley? Yes. Mr. Rivers? Thank you very much. Thank you, and thank you for accommodating me. Thank you, thank it. you. Uh, next we have the Human Affairs Commission 4759, um, dealing with investigation procedures, which is both before us a fourth time. Yes, sir. <laughs> You're sick of me, I know. Um, this uh, proposal, again, deals with um, defining the way that we can administratively close fair housing investigations. The first time we sought to have it withdrawn because HUD indicated that one of our definitional um, 
um, subparts would not be permitted by them. So we asked to have it be withdrawn and resubmitted sans that um, subsection. And then last time, I believe you um, identified a superfluous or maybe um, unclear word. And so we have resubmitted the regulation uh, removing that word. So unless there's any additional questions. Um, Why did y'all develop these changes? We have um, the same types of administrative closures in the employment side of investigations. HUD has allowed us in the past to administratively close housing cases, but there wasn't a section within our regulations that allowed us to do so. So we've done it with HUD's blessing, but we didn't have it clarified in the regulations, and that's why we wanted to make it clear that we can't administratively close cases when either the agreed party isn't cooperating with us or when they indicate explicitly that they want us to just close the case. Any other questions? Okay. Move for passage. Get a motion. You, you motion. Okay. Ready to vote. Mr. Alexander. Yes. Mr. Bradley. Yes. Mr. Rivers. Okay. Thank you very much. Item number 4732, Consumer Affairs, Methods of Operation, Application for Federal Truth, I think. Good morning. Good morning. How are I'm you doing? I'm Carrie Gruby Leibarker, the administrator over at the Department of Consumer Affairs. And um, we did a withdrawal and resubmit last time. This is just an update to our general regulations, our method of operations, our FOIA process and making some federal and state law updates and clarification. There was one concern with the last sentence of section 28-9 that was in our prior version. We had inserted other applicable statutes because it lists two statutes, but that's not exhaustive of our investigative authority. Um, so alternatively in the withdrawal and resubmit, we just took out any reference um, to the statutes that give us our investigative authority as opposed to trying to list them all. <laughs> yes, sir. That works. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Okay. That's why I'm so quiet. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm impressed. I'm, well, I'm worried. <laughs> I'm ready to vote. Entertain a motion to vote. So moved. Moving second. Ready okay. to vote. Mr. Alexander? Yes. Mr. Bradley? Yes. Mr. Rivers? Aye. Thank you very much. Um, our last item this comes from the Attorney General's office. Um, we have. Cote Kirkland here with the Attorney General's office dealing with money transfer companies. This document was before us last weekend. Yes. And you all are back now with the required changes. Yes, sir. With the satisfactory changes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. Go, go right ahead. Go ahead. Sir, good morning. Good morning. And, uh, I'm Lewis Cody with the uh, South Carolina Attorney General's office. And we're here again this morning to go over our proposed regulations being promulgated under the South Carolina Anti-Money Laundering Act. Um, the act contained a provision that the act itself would not take effect until one year after approval of the governor or upon the publishing of regulations implementing the act, whichever occurred later. Um, the governor's approval came in June of 2016 and therefore the regulations we are proposing today would implement the act allowing for its provisions to go into effect. Um, the act itself was written in part to regulate money service businesses and money transmitters who conduct business in the state to establish uniformity with other states to the extent practical. Um, our proposed regulations uh, primarily lay out the requirements for applications for those who wish to obtain a license or approval to conduct money transmission or currency exchange in this state, as well as assisting licensees in interpreting the requirements of the act. <clears throat> 
The proposed regulations today also contain an amendment discussed last week whereby we removed two instances of the phrase satisfactory proof and replaced it with evidence. Uh, this time we'd be willing to answer any further questions. Any questions? Thank you. Do you guys need money to implement this or do you have money in the budget or um, do you know? That question might be a little above me. I think we have tried to budget for that. Um, uh, I'm not sure where that stands. I'm sorry. You're shaking your head yes. Does that mean? Yes, that sir. Matthew Gates, Government Relations for the Attorney General's Office. We had budget proviso requests for staff to do this, but those provisos were not approved this year. So. so you don't have the money to do this? Well, we're going to do it using existing staff, sir. Okay. Good. Thank you. So they have money to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they have these statutes if they didn't have a way to carry them out. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Any other questions? What, what does this multi, one more thing, what does this multi-state licensing system entail, basically? Give me a little show. Yeah, it's, so it's a, an online platform where you can file, the, the um, applicants would upload documents or uh, initially, all the states who use it would have access to the information that is on it, and so we can go do tasks and reviews and, and our um, actual application review through the NMLS system. Okay, thank you very much. Yes, sir. Any other questions? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, get a motion to vote. Vote time. Mr. Alexander? Yes. Mr. Bradley? Yes. Mr. Rivers? Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. This meeting is officially adjourned. Thank you very much. Good meeting.